Hello, and welcome to the latest ClearBridge podcast. This is Jeff Schulze, CFA, investment strategist at ClearBridge Investments. ClearBridge is a global equity manager with $146 billion in assets under management, committed to delivering long-term results through authentic active management. ClearBridge tailors our strategies to meet three primary client objectives in our areas of proven expertise, high active share, income solutions, and low volatility. We integrate ESG considerations into our fundamental research process across all strategies. So growth strategies make up a significant portion of our high active share offerings at ClearBridge and have been the dominant investment style among U.S. and global equities for most of the current bull market. That positive momentum had a hiccup, however, in the third quarter as investors began to question the growth rates and long-term profitability of smaller and newly public growth companies. To help us examine the about-face and sentiment towards growth stocks and where they continue to see promise in this area of the market, I'm excited to join in the podcast booth by Hillary Frisch, a senior technology software analyst at ClearBridge, and Aram Green, portfolio manager for the ClearBridge Select Strategy and co-portfolio manager for our small-cap growth and mid-cap growth strategies. Hillary joined us last year to discuss cloud computing, so welcome back, Hillary. And Aram, I believe this is your first visit to the ClearBridge podcast booth. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jeff. Thanks, Jeff. We're happy to be here. And the topic of today's podcast is growth opportunities in the digital enterprise. So we'd love to get your feedback about the topics we cover and how we can make our podcast better. So you can contact us with questions, comments, and suggestions by emailing us at podcast at clearbridge.com. So it's been an interesting three months. I think the question that's on everybody's mind right now is whether value has the ability to have some sustained leadership after leading after the last three months. It's really been a growth world for the last 10 years. But I think in trying to be able to determine whether or not this leadership can persist, let's talk about the events that led to this sudden shift in market dynamics. So Aaron, maybe I'll start with you. What do you think really started this move over to the value cycle that we've seen in the last quarter? Thanks, Jeff. Well, I think you have to take a step back and understand why we had such asset inflation on the growth side of the market. We really had valuations expanding in more secular growth companies whose products or services address large market opportunities as investors were enamored by this growth in a number of different industries and sectors, but particularly within technology. And at the same time, investor interest in holding exposure to cyclical companies started to wane over the last couple of years due to fears over where we were in the cycle, that we were late in the cycle and there wasn't much left, issues over global trade with China, as well as um, a series of weakening global manufacturing data. And so valuations with growth expanded for the last couple of years. There was a brief sell-off in the end of 2018, and then we saw valuations start to roar back again in the beginning of, of this year. And what worked continued to work. So we saw really strong performance out of IPOs. The growthier companies were outperforming the lower growth companies. And people were really piling into growth companies and IPOs. And by late August, the premium valuation that investors were willing to pay for secular growers versus cyclical businesses was really reaching historic levels. And coincidentally, we started to see some signs that value stocks might be more attractive, not only due to valuation, but some signals and some data points on the macro economy. And I know, Jeff, you spent a lot of time looking at that. Maybe you can talk about sort of what we were seeing at that period of time in the end of summer. 
Yeah, yeah, certainly valuation plays a point, but valuation is a notoriously bad timing tool. But the further stretch that rubber band gets, the more of a, a violent rebound you will have when things tend to normalize. But if you think about what was happening over the summer, the administration continued to move forward on tariffs with China in July of this year. The markets were pricing in a recession. You actually saw the 10-year Treasury go down by 52 basis points in the month of August. But not coincidentally, the day that the administration said that trade talks were being resumed and there was a thawing of negotiations, the 10-year Treasury bottomed, started to move up, and it never really looked back. But if you take that one factor and you had a, other, a couple of other positive catalysts that kind of went into values corner, if you will, for this outperformance. You also saw an oil price spike due to the Saudi Arabian production going offline in mid-September. The ECB and, and Draghi's final farewell, he basically threw all of his monetary policy bullets out there, cut rates uh, again into more negative territory, but they also instituted QE of $20 billion for the foreseeable future, essentially until inflation converges with where the ECB wants that to be. So we're talking three or four years out from now. And then also to your point, Aram, um, you saw a couple of better data points here in the U.S. that took recession fears off the table, specifically a better retail sales number, and then also a firming up of inflation. So I really think that this is being driven by overly pessimistic fears that trade wars were going to cause a near-term recession, and also the realization that a soft landing may be a better probability than an outright recession. Now, kind of thinking about this sell-off from growth, and it hasn't been that robust of a sell-off overall. If you look at the quarter-to-date numbers, the Russell 1000 growth is actually outperforming the Russell 1000 value by 2%. And IT specifically has outperformed on a relative basis versus the market since this value rotation. So it hasn't been IT that's been kind of the slow patch. It's really been the consumer discretionary that has been leading to this breakdown. But overall, as a sector, Hillary, do you view this sell-off as healthy? And given the sell-off that we've seen, where are you focusing your efforts and what looks attractive to you today? Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, well, we have seen growth sell-offs in what feels like each of the past four or five years. We had early 14, early 16. We had late 16, although that was broader-based. We had late 18. That was also more indiscriminate and broader-based. But it really hit growth relatively hard. It's not the first time. Not our first time in this rodeo. And <laughs> typically, each of those has represented a pretty good opportunity to accumulate dislocated growth names. However, as you point out, this sell-off represented about half the sell-off among growth names that we've seen in those prior downdrafts, particularly 14 and 16, and actually 18 as well. So meaning growth names, certain ones are down a lot, but on average, they're down about half the amount we saw peak to trough. For that and certain other reasons, we're focusing the majority of our time in finding the majority of the opportunities within names we consider key franchise names with proven out business models that are typically what we consider cloud-based or subscription-based business models that leverage the key trends of digital transformation and names that also have strong free cash flow support. There are quite a number of them trading below their historical averages. And particularly, we look for names that are industry-leading in sustainability measures because we think they're going to weather the long-term much better. And there are a number of those, at least increasing pockets of those that we're focused on. Now, you mentioned that you're investing in companies that are benefiting from the digitization of the enterprise. Try saying digitization three times quickly. It's impossible to do I so, tried already. Yeah, I, I failed miserably. Yeah. <laughs> what exactly is it? Why is it happening? And what companies and sectors are enabling this initiative? 
Sure. Um, well, basically, the world made a lot of technology investments in the late 1990s, all of which have to be upgraded. Uh, a lot of those were focused on the sort of run the back office of the business, but they're old and they're in need of tender loving care and change. The cloud and modern cloud-based architectures are allowing organizations to conduct business digitally and flexibly and also to harness the power of data in ways that corporations never could. That's a huge sub-theme across all of our industries. And companies like Amazon have just really raised the bar on what constitutes an effective business, one that's able to serve customers in a fast, personalized, and responsive way. So all that combined means that companies have to invest to keep up. And the preferred and really the one weapon of choice is technology in that regard. So that's basically digital transformation. It's the modernization of IT systems and the addition of new systems which enable companies to do things in relation to their customers, partners, employees that they've never done before or they tried to do and now they can do better and they can do all sorts of new things. In that regard, we're finding opportunities in technology kind of across the board that manages the key functions that cut across an organization from IT to the human resources systems that manage employees to the systems that handle financial transactions and those certainly that manage customer interactions. It's a key area of focus for every organization. And once you have all these systems in place, there's a tremendous amount of data that's generated from them. We're seeing companies able to draw intelligence from that data. And we're investing in companies, among others, data analytics vendors that allow those companies to pull that data and drive that intelligence to be able to operate their businesses better, to be able to better address the customer. And then we're also focusing on all the glue that makes it work. One example is security with all that data out there on the businesses, on customers, that resides both within the four walls as well as in the cloud. That data has to be protected and kept safe. And uh, there are a lot of examples of that, but that's enabling infrastructure. Target, obviously, from a couple of years ago. I mean, this is going to be a secular theme for you know, a long time. decades, maybe even centuries. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah. It's sort of the necessary evil and also a key enabling technology. So security is still an exciting area. Now, I know the team spends a considerable amount of time meeting and evaluating private companies, which is unique. Why is that useful to your investment process? Maybe I'll kick it over to you, Aram, to, to give a little bit of perspective on that. You know, we're, we're mostly public investors, but it's important to remember that most of the economy isn't public. It's private. And so having a finger on the pulse in terms of what's going on in the private marketplace is very important to us, really for three chief reasons. Firstly, these companies, if they're rapidly growing and have some innovative products or solutions, there's a good chance that they're going to end up being independent public companies. So getting to know those company management teams and understand the business models before they go public gives us an information advantage. Secondly, we do invest in private companies. It's a minority of what we do, but in a number of our funds, we have the ability to invest in late stage companies. And so we've made a number of successful investments in those companies. So always looking with one eye on the private market to understand where there might be opportunities to deploy some capital in the private marketplace. And the last reason- Can I catch you off there? Can sure. you give me, give me an example of one that you've done that uh, has been private, that's come public, that you were able to get in early on? Yeah, sure. So one example of that is a company called DocuSign. DocuSign, uh, many of you might be familiar with. You maybe used it to open up a bank account or start a mortgage. I'm literally buying a house right, or selling a house right now. So DocuSign is what we use. So I'm supporting, you know, our <laughs> franchise here. It really speaks to what Hillary was talking about earlier about finding these companies that cut across so many different industries and organizations to improve the efficiency within their business. And DocuSign really fits in well there. It was a company that we invested in when they were private and we made a substantial larger investment when they were public. 
Um, another example is a company called App Dynamics. Again, speaks to some of the trends that Hillary was touching upon earlier. App Dynamics is a company that helps m- monitor applications, infrastructure, really a number of different areas of your technology stack to jump in front of problems before they occur. And so really to understand how your applications and technology are running. And that's something that was a much more manual process and is now very automated with harnessing the power and data analytics that are being fed off of those applications and areas of your tech stack. So that was a company we invested in when they were private. We thought that they would actually go public. And on the doorstep of uh, the IPO, Cisco swooped in and made a very large premium offer to acquire the company before it ended up going public. But I think it also speaks to why uh, investing and spending time with private companies is so important because in that investment and understanding that market opportunity, it led us to a company called New Relic, which ended up going public a couple of years later, uh, which was a peer company to AppDynamics, but they were originally playing more on the small, medium business side, whereas AppDynamics was going after the global 2000 companies. That also then led us to a company called Dynatrace and doing our competitive intelligence. And we made an investment in, in Dynatrace when they ended up going public. And then most recently, Datadog ended up going public and we invested in them on the initial public offering. And this is all from your initial work, you know, five companies ago. Yes, yes. And (laughs) so it's, you know, investors often ask us, how do you find ideas? And we find ideas in a number of different ways. I think that's a good example of sort of how one idea can lead to another idea. Um, And Datadog is actually a company that we wanted to invest in when they were private. They are actually headquartered in our uh, headquarters here in New York. There is, are a is that right? They're in our us. building. Yeah. Just a few whoa. floors down. A few floors below us. So we had been spending time with them, understanding the business and had been really begging them to let us come in as investors when they were private. But the business model is so efficient that they really didn't need access to a lot of capital. And so even though we wanted to invest when they were private and every time we saw them in the elevator going up and down, we were begging it's not, uh, to it's let not, us it's in. Not, it's not stalking, right? It's begging, right? <laughs> it's, 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 Very it's clearly begging. Poking and prodding. Uh, so we, uh, we had to wait until the initial public offering, which happened uh, just a couple months ago. And we finally made our investment in Datadog. So I think it speaks to why it's so important for us to be spending time with these private companies and how the work that we're doing can lead us to new opportunities. The the last reason that I just want to emphasize in terms of why we spend time with private companies is a lot of these well-funded private companies are or could be competing in the future with our public companies. Okay. And so understanding how these companies' products and solutions could challenge our incumbent position and the investments we have in in our public investments is very important to make sure that we're staying top of the risks that are bubbling up. Make sure the disruptors that you have in your portfolio that you think are disruptors don't get disrupted by the new, better technology Absolutely. coming That's out That's right. There. Increasingly in the cloud era, there are few, either fewer barriers to entry or the barriers are different than they used to be historically. So often, key disruption comes from the early stage, very early stage, smaller companies. Uh, which is different from what had been the case historically. So it it really sounds like the IPO window is a a real means for idea generation. Um, Obviously, one idea led to five later that ended up in the portfolio. What specifically are you looking for in these companies? Is there like a certain profile that you want to see? It's not too different than what we're doing um, in an existing public company. 
We're looking for companies that have an innovative product and solution that's coming into a marketplace that either is well-established and they're going to take a lot of market share, or this might be the category leader in a rapidly developing market, which didn't exist before. And so that's sort of the the cornerstone, the first nugget of what we're looking for in terms of the criteria. But from there, we want to see an innovative, forward-looking management team. Oftentimes on the IPO, these companies are taken public by a visionary CEO founder who was the uh, person that really dreamed up this idea and has taken it from an idea to a business to now scaling to $100, $200 million in revenue and really has this vision of where things are going and understands the marketplace very well. We tend to favor recurring revenue streams. So this is a, this gives us the, the wherewithal to see that there's a sustainable business, that there's a constant draw of customers or the end user of the products and solutions that this company provides. So the, a stickiness, if you will. Absolutely, stickiness. And so th- those are some of the things that we're looking for. We also want to know that the company from this point on is a funded company so that they don't need to access additional capital in the marketplace to continue to build this company over time. Now, that's an important point that you bring up because if you look at WeWorks, right? I mean, they needed to access capital. And when they tried to come public, we all know how that turned out. So I think that's an underrated quality that I think a lot of investment managers probably overlook. Yeah, I think I think that was, you know, going back to your first question in terms of what caused this bubble to burst in late summer, um, that was the time that WeWork hit the road and started to meet with investors. And I think that was the biggest poster child for a company that was growing very rapidly on the top line. But when you peeled back the onion and looked at the unit economics, the capital intensity of the business, the eventual margin structure, it really was not as attractive as what people thought. And that was because we didn't have all the details until they hit the road and filed with the SEC. So that was a realization that investors were sort of looking at growth broadly with a broad brush and that all growth is not created equal, that you need to look at the unit economics of the business or the capital intensity or the margin structure to understand when things mature what is the cash generation of this business? At the end of the day, as investors, that's what matters to us is not just the growth, but the cash generation and the earnings power of the company. Or in WeWork's case, the ability to actually make a profit down the road. <laughs> uh, you know, what, what are your thoughts on the fact that the public markets have taken a pretty objective eye to WeWorks and these questionable business models? I mean, I think this is probably a healthy development at this point in the cycle, right? And if you think about private equity, a lot of money has been flowing to that space, and it's just really been about ideas, not quite akin to the late 90s. But uh, the fact that market is and putting some discipline there, I think, is an encouraging sign for the longevity of this cycle. I mean, would you agree, Hillary? Absolutely. I think investors in general are becoming more discerning. And the areas where we're focused are areas where those battlegrounds or uh, battle lines have generally already been drawn a long time ago, or for the most part. And what's interesting is that not only are these business models recurring revenue models and highly predictable, but one of the facets of these models that's increasingly appreciated by investors, certainly us for a long period of time, is that they're generating a lot of cash. In fact, some of our target names have free cash flow margins that are 5, 10 points above where they were historically. They're converting from revenue to free cash flow at 20 to 40% margins, headed higher. Pretty, pretty healthy. <laughs> they're okay. They're okay. I mean, it's interesting because especially because they're in this land grab mode of garnering new customers and trying to expand rapidly within their customers in this 
uh, rapidly growing space. So the fact that they're doing that now is is highly encouraging for the future. So we think that leaves an, a lot of optionality on the table. And that's kind of your outlook for the growth picture for the next year or so? You're looking for these disruptors that uh, may be being thrown out with the bathwater right now at attractive valuations? Yeah. How about you, Aaron? What, what are your views on the outlook for 2020? Yeah, so very much in line with what Hillary was just talking about. I think that uh, we saw this rapid rise of valuations and growth. And usually when a bubble bursts and people sort of get burned from the last person entering, realize that they were the, the greater fool, that it takes time for that sort of to calm down. And so I think we're in an environment where valuations have come back to a very reasonable level. We're seeing attractive valuations. They're not giving these businesses away because of a lot of the attributes that Hillary talked about are very recognized. These are innovative growth businesses growing quite rapidly with expanding cash earnings and free cash flow yields. The other aspect is that these companies have a great degree of visibility into what the future looks like. So if we do go into a downturn, these companies that have 80 to 100% of their revenue recurring, they understand and have visibility into what the revenue is going to look like in the future years. And you contrast that with a company that is an auto manufacturer or an industrial company. They really need to go out there and hustle and, and create those sales, whereas these companies already have a good chunk of their revenue contracted. So that, The proverbial ham, hamster wheel, if you will. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So it just there are different attributes there, but we feel that these companies, from a revenue perspective, are going to have good stability and clearly what will slow is closing new business. So while new business might be harder to come by, they have a lot of visibility into the revenue coming in the door, which gives them the fortitude to continue to invest for the future, which paves the way for future year revenue growth. So they don't have to be beholden to the financial markets. They can continue to fund and expand into the verticals where they see opportunities. One thing I'll mention from just a broader economic perspective is that software CapEx has increased from 2% of total CapEx in 1980 all the way up to 15% in 2019. A lot of that's obviously been driven by cloud computing. So for the first time in history, software is now a bigger share of CapEx than tech equipment. Um, so wow. I think that this is obviously the beginning of a secular trend, and this is going to be a dynamic that goes on for the next couple of decades, That's Indeed. as we've mentioned earlier. We think it's headed higher. That's what we're investing in. Uh, Hillary, Aaron, thank you so much for joining me in the booth here today. And thank you, listeners, for joining into the podcast here. And we hope to have you on the next ClearBridge podcast next month. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Jeff. Nice talking to you. Take care. Please note the following. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are the individual speakers as of November 15th, 2019, and may differ from other managers or the firm as a whole and are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Any statistics referenced have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed. Neither ClearBridge Investments or its information providers are responsible for any damages or losses arising from any use of this information. Thank you.